If you, guys, if you guys have Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we'll be starting in verse 1. Uh, right now, the NBA playoffs are going on, and uh, pretty much every year the last five years uh, during the playoffs, um, the GOAT debate comes up, kind of the greatest of all time. Is it Michael Jordan? Is it LeBron James? It's definitely not LeBron James, but people just like to, to get into hypothetical, you know, questions. Um, and then it'll come up, you know, what's the, you know, who's the best, best player ever? Who's the best team ever? Is it the Lakers or the Celtics? If you've heard someone over there, is, uh, yeah, you, you heard them. Um, but greatest of all times debates are kind of broad. Um, uh, who is the best James Bond ever, right? Talk to someone a little bit older, like definitely Sean Connery. I'm impartial to Daniel Craig, mostly because I feel like he looks like our own Royce Nicholas. Um, so I'm like, man, I, I, just, I have a soft spot for Daniel Craig because he looks like Royce. So I don't know if that's fair. Who's the greatest actress of all time? Is it Meryl Streep, Katherine Hepburn, stand-up comedian Dave Chappelle, or The Field, right? Um, we can go on and on with the, the debates of who is greater. And you might be wondering, man, why are you bringing up uh, GOAT debates? And the reason is this, is uh, many people believe, uh, many scholars believe that um, the most important book of the Bible is the book of Romans. And just like any good GOAT debate, it is debatable. Uh, I think the Gospels, like, have Jesus a lot, so they're pretty cool, too. Uh, John Piper says this, though. He says, the greatest book in the world is the Bible. The greatest letter in that book is Romans. And the greatest chapter in that letter is Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to argue, I think probably the best verse might be Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And because of that, man, we're going to dive into that verse today. Uh, if you guys are new to the series, the Apostle Paul, through the first seven chapters of Romans, has been revealing to us that the root issue of what is wrong with this world is, there are a lot of different issues, but at their root, or a lot of different symptoms, but at their root, the issue is our estrangement from God as the human race. That ever since we have been separated from him, um, we have not loved him or anyone else the way that we should. And so then he also answers the question, I mean, how can it be made right again? How can this world be made right again? He's saying the world is being remade, but it, it comes through a person, and it's our being reconciled to the same God we were once estranged from, the God we were once enemies of, now welcomes us in as his people through Jesus. So in other words, for seven chapters, Paul's been unpacking both our need for the gospel and what that gospel is. Now, Paul is going to start asking in the second half of Romans another question. If the gospel is true, how does that change how you see your life? It's a question I love for you to start really thinking about, kind of pressing into the, the corners of your life, that the gospel wouldn't just kind of stay here, but it would permeate you, Jesus for you, in you, through you. So if the promises of the gospel are true, how does that change how you see yourself? Your problems, how does it change the way you see yourself, your problems, your, your identity, your sexuality, your vocation, your purpose, your mission, your money, and on and on and on it goes. And so today in Romans 8, Paul's going to walk us through more of what the gospel brings, what's offered to us through the gospel. Again, we can often forget what has been offered to us or forget how amazing it is. Uh, we can get used to it and not realize, like, <laughs> how how just completely otherworldly grace is. How radical it really is. We can get so comfortable with something. Uh, one scholar tells a story of two pastors. Uh, they were from a communist nation in the 80s in Eastern Europe, and they were attending a conference in the United States, and they went to a grocery store. 
Uh, and they had never been to a gro- like a, a privately owned grocery store before, and they went and they saw all the variety on the shelves. Like we're working with six different types of green beans. And, and, and the guy said, man, I, I watched these two pastors. They just started to, like one of them just started to cry. And he was like, can anyone come in here? Like anyone's allowed in here? This isn't owned by the government. This isn't just for government officials. Like who is this for? And to them, it was just inconceivable that a store could be open and available to, to anyone to come in and, and grab. And again, if you're kind of used to, to walking into a grocery store to get the food you need, you might not realize how radical that is for a lot of the world in the same way if you've kind of been around church or around phrases like Jesus or grace or the gospel, you can kind of lose sight of the benefits that are available to you. You can lose sight. You can even become ungrateful for the greatest gift in the world if you become, if you get used to it. Kind of like kids on Christmas, uh, the day after Christmas, right? The day before, all I want is this one toy. They don't, it's never one toy, right, parent? Like, like, like they want a grip of toys. But, but, man, if I got this one and they are psyched for like three days and they lose sight of how bad they wanted it, how much it cost, on and on it goes. And so today we're going to look at one aspect of this gift that we've lost sight of so easily as followers of Jesus. And by the way, if you're here today and you wouldn't describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, uh, there's really good news in here for you too. This is available to, to anyone. Because even that grocery store and that story it's not true that it's available to anyone. It's only available to those who could pay for the food. But we have a gift that's been paid for by another. And the, the thing is, it's a gift that we have to receive. But you can receive it even today. And so today we're going to look at this one big gift. And it's a new freedom. So if you have Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Romans 8 verse 1. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation For those in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. All right, stop. This verse is huge. Like we can read it, we can put it on it like a bumper sticker or a coffee cup. We can kind of neuter its power. But if you actually get what's going on in this passage, it changes your entire life in every single way. Every single human relationship is different. The way you look at Money is different. The way you look at um, your relationship to God is different. The way, the way you look at identity is different. The way you look at your past is different. The way you look at your future is different. Paul has just laid out again in Romans 7 how much of a mess we are because of the fact that we are alienated from God. And the assumption can be that if we're messy and we still wrestle so much with sin and brokenness that we might still be estranged. And so now he's kind of... Assuming that they're going to ask, you know, um, well, in light of all that sin, man, like am I... I'm, it's probably, like, how much condemnation is there to work with? How estranged are we really? And his answer is there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And condemnation is a legal term. You're condemned, um, you know, in, in a court of law for a charge held against you. You kind of owe a debt or a payment. And, again, our, our charge is not with the state of California or the United States government or an international tribunal. It's a charge in the courtroom of heaven. And the charges are legit. So often in the courtrooms of this country and of this world, there is a lot of injustice. That is not the case in this courtroom. It's a just judge, and we, we should be rightly condemned. But for those in Christ, that debt, that um, penalty no longer exists because the debt's been paid in full by another The gospel teaches that Jesus died in our place for our sin. He paid the penalty we deserve 
that on the cross he was treated as if he was guilty for our crimes that we committed against the king of the universe and those the king loves. All of the wrath that we deserved. And again, wrath is just the other side of love. If someone hurts someone you love, you will be angry. You do not love someone if when they are victimized, you go, ah, no big deal. The, the cry that's been happening lately in our culture for justice, again, that's something wrong has happened. We want to make it right. Wrath is the other side of love, and God's the only one who does wrath perfectly. He's the only one who does justice perfectly. And so all of the wrath that you and I deserve, the justice we deserved from a sovereign king was poured out on Jesus, which means there is no wrath left for you. There is no condemnation left for you. It would be unjust for God to punish Jesus for a sin and then punish you for. That's double jeopardy. Now, Paul has just laid out there is freedom from condemnation. But I just want to say this. As a pastor, I know that for far too many followers of Jesus, they do not live in that freedom. They do not believe the gospel is that good of news. For many of us, we still functionally live like we believe we are condemned or we're not sure if we're condemned. Or like a man or a woman waiting to hear what the charges are going to be. And not living in that, that freedom manifests itself in one of two ways that we often talk about as a church. Uh, you guys might remember this framework from the Gospel-Centered Life curriculum we went through as a church a few years ago. And it's the concepts of pretending and performing. Pretending and performing. When we're not sure if we are condemned or we think we might be, we move to pretending and performing, right? So what is pretending? Pretending is when we don't want God or others to see the real us wrestling with our sin and our brokenness, so we try to distract them with something else. You may even be trying to distract yourself. I've mentioned this before. Self-deception is the, the key to addiction. So it's the key to all uh, deeply ingrained sin patterns. But especially with God and others, I mean, we think surely God couldn't love the real me. Surely you as another person couldn't love the real me. So I'll pretend and impress you with other things. Kind of in the, in the God kind of Christian world, it's like, look at all the good things I'm doing, God. But, but again, pretending in the Christian life to look like I'm serving, I'm tithing, I'm sharing the gospel, I'm loving my neighbor and my church family. I'm going on missions trips. I'm fighting against abortion and racial injustice. I'm learning to handle conflicts better. I'm reading my Bible every day. We do, right? It's, it's check me out, God. We can kind of, um, or, again, or pretend we can just act like this thing isn't really happening. Kind of like the woman at the well with Jesus. She's like, hey, let's talk about a theological debate. And there's a space for theological debates. There's a space for political debates. But if all you ever talk about is political debates, societal debates, theological debates, you're never talking about your heart, you're in trouble. You're probably pretending. We can do this with other people too. And by the way, non-Christians do this too. We're, again, we're all aware of the fact that we are not who we should be, right? We, we do this with other people, right? Um, look at my career. Maybe if I'm successful enough, you won't catch my brokenness. Or, or I'll be just too important for you to point it out. You might see it, but shut your mouth. I'm the boss. I'm on top of the game. Um, look at my beauty, right? Maybe if I'm a good-looking enough, uh, people will miss the deep-seated insecurity and ugliness of my soul. Could be look at kind of my Christian vibe. Look at my smile and how I say I'm blessed when people at church ask how I'm doing. 
Look at my social media. Maybe if I post in support of a cause or enough causes, people will miss that I often don't live according to those ideals myself. And again, man, church people are notorious for pretending. It should be the safest place in the world to be honest because the way that you get into a church is by admitting you're so bad Jesus had to die for you. (laughs) Sometimes we function like a hospital where everyone pretends they're not sick. Doctor's like, hey, why are you here? You're like, not sure. I, don't, I didn't even know. Is this a hospital? I thought this was kind of a, a, f- a space to show off how healthy you are, right? I'm here to encourage the other sick people out there. Well, the hospital exists for sick people. Again, church people are notorious for pretending. I think hypocrisy often doesn't start with a desire to live some crazy double life, but with a desire to cover up shame and guilt and embarrassment. Also, I want to apologize to, the, to you guys. I have just not been acknowledging that you exist during this whole sermon. I'm, I'm right-handed, and it gets out of hand. Um, literally out of hand. All right. Um, right? Uh, we can think to ourselves, man, people wouldn't love me if I admitted I don't know how to honor Jesus in this area. One of the hardest parts for me as a pastor, uh, a thing that breaks my heart, is watching people whose lives are clearly not working the way that they want to. Their relational world is in shambles or they're addicted and they're trying to convince me that they don't need help. Trying to convince me that they already understand. It's one of the things that makes me just want to sob sometimes when someone's like, no, no, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. Great, I get it. No, you don't get it. Slow down. Let the Spirit teach you. Please stop trying to convince me that you don't need grace. You are a sinner. You have guilt, but you also have wounds. You have a lot. Let Jesus meet you. Learn to follow him. Be an apprentice, a student. I'm learning to follow Jesus. We're learning as imperfect people to follow Jesus together. But again, it's rooted in that fundamental lie of people wouldn't love me if I admitted that this is true of me. The gospel, and sometimes the church doesn't have the gospel. That's happened throughout church history and even in individual churches today. But, 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 but a church with the gospel at the center should be the safest place in the world to go, I am sin sick. That's why I need a doctor. That's what Jesus said. I should be terminal. I should be condemned. Right? So that's pretending. On the other end of the spectrum, people who tend to feel like they're condemned, they do what we, uh, we like to call performing. It's connected to pretending, but they're not the same. Performing. And performing is is when we feel insecure and maybe we start to realize that God or others are seeing through our pretending. Here's here's what performing is. It's when we water down God's standards for a disciple of Jesus and just make it a simple set of rules that we can follow. It's very rare that performers make the thing that they need to do the thing that they can't do. Which, by the way, also means you don't need grace because I'm meeting the standard all the time. And um, often it involves taking the sins you don't struggle with and making not struggling with those sins the signs of maturity, right? So maybe you've never been wounded deeply and you've never had to wrestle with bitterness. You're like, being forgiving is what it's all about. Like, well, that's easy for you. Also, you're a glutton, though. Let's talk about that. Often involves, again, taking those sins you don't struggle with and making not struggling with those the mark of maturity. Again, instead of talking about sexual brokenness that all of humanity is wrestling with, which makes us all a people in need of grace. 
performers will focus in just one area of sexual brokenness the Bible talks about. For example, in the Western Evangelical Church, for years, we zeroed in, man, right? Homosexuality, premarital sex. That, that, that's, that's kind of the thing. So, and what that did was, is if you were a heterosexual married Christian, you can feel good about yourself because you've performed well. <laughs> but God sees the heart. He sees all the sexual brokenness, sexual sin and dysfunction, and goes, all of that needs Jesus. And there isn't a single person who is not sexually broken at some level who doesn't need grace and healing. God has a higher standard for sex and a more beautiful purpose for sex than what the performance mindset believes. Sex in a marriage between a man and a woman can still be sex that is fundamentally selfish, leaves yourself or your spouse feeling used. Sex in marriage can still involve things like abuse or assault. It can still be tarnished by a lack of fidelity when you consider things like pornography or emotional affairs but the evangelical church in the West has really only highlighted premarital sex and LGBT sex. By the way, I've talked to many of my Christian LGBT friends who have told me, I'm not offended the church teaches that the Bible calls LGBT sex sinful or not God's design. I'm offended by the fact that we don't talk about all of the sexually broken things the scriptures warn us against. It's the failure to admit that we're all sexually broken in different ways because of the fall that feels real inconsistent and makes me feel like I'm on an island. And the statistics bear that out too. Now, sex is just one example, but performing is lowering God's standards to what we think we can achieve or attain to, to deal with this feeling of condemnation. I don't want to feel condemned. I want to I create a bar that's low for me that I can jump over, but this never works out. It always involves looking over your shoulder because <laughs> you know your performance isn't good enough when you're honest. So feeling like we're condemned can lead us to pretending or performing, both of which do not sound like the freedom from condemnation Paul just talked about. This is where the gospel and, and, and true, uh, the true gospel and religion are fundamentally so different, diametrically opposed. There is no chance, we'll get into that in a little bit, no chance of condemnation. So, so why do people do this? Why do we act like we're condemned? Why do we think we're condemned even if Jesus has already died for us? And in my experience as a pastor, I think there are two main reasons why people wrestle with this, and I've seen this over and over again. Uh, many times we struggle to believe that we're not condemned for one of two reasons. The first one is the size, I'll put this in quotes, the size of our past sin. The size, right? It's, it's I ruined the reputation of a friend. I committed adultery. I had an abortion. I have lived out a lie in a big area of my life. Remember one time I met with a guy. Um, I was on staff at a church. I met with a guy, and he wanted to meet with me. And he goes, I need to tell you something I've never told anyone. And, and we sat down. He said, I, I, I went to law school, a really prestigious law school, and it was really hard, and I didn't get the best grades and then a friend of mine um, got a really good job at a prestigious law firm. And, and he said, hey, you should apply for this job. And I said, I, he said, I wanted to, but I was like, I can't because my grades aren't good enough. And he said, what I did is I forged my transcripts and I turned them in. And I've had a job with this law firm for about a year now. And I just, man, I just don't know what to do with it. And so we had a conversation about grace, a conversation about repentance, a conversation about um, the freedom that comes with honesty and how I was going to pressure him into anything, and he never came back. But it was so clear. He, he just, he, he didn't know what to do with the sense of condemnation. I remember a conversation. Uh, I was on staff at a church, and there was a woman in her 50s, a, a beautiful, 
kind woman. Like just her heart, just she, she loved people really, really, really well. And I had a conversation with her one time, and I just thought, man, to me, she just seemed so mature. Um, but as we talked, she just said, hey, I, I, you know, I, my daughter's been going to your college ministry, and I, she talks a lot about how you can know you're completely forgiven today and not condemned today. And, and I just, I, I've been a Christian for over 30 years. I've been on a church staff for over 20 years, and I, just, I, I don't really think God could really fully forgive me. When I was in college, I, I had an abortion, and I just assumed that like, that could never be forgiven and we got to talk and I got to see just grace wash over this woman and literally like her countenance got even she was an amazing person but but man it was even more amazing she said I feel like I I appreciate Jesus even more now and and that should happen and so if that's you this morning I want you to know that God agrees with you your sin is big but where you don't agree is that it's unreconcilable Your sin is big, which is why he provided a big response, the death of his son. Jesus died on the cross to make your forgiveness and freedom possible. It's a big debt, right? It's not like a small, you know, oh, man, I'll pay, you know, I'll pick up your tab at a taco shop. I'll buy you a burrito. It's a massive debt, a massive punishment he took upon himself. And so if you're still wrestling with condemnation over something really big, you should probably confess it to God and some trustworthy people. We'd love to chat to you. But the thing I want to ask you is, are you willing to look Jesus in the eyes and with seriousness say, what you did on the cross wasn't good enough. I've got to finish the job. I've got to make myself more right with God than you did. I've got to deal with my condemnation better than you have. The second reason so many people who claim to be followers of Jesus wrestle with condemnation isn't the size of the one big sin, it's the cycle of sin, right? Uh, It's not the one big sin in their past, it's their assumption about the size of the debt they have accumulated through still struggling with the same besetting sin year in and year out, right? Now, if you think about this in financial terms, right, there's like almost like two ways to go broke in terms of spending, right? Um, One is to make a big purchase you can't afford, like a house or a fancy car, right, 10 to hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, maybe millions at once. That's something like what the person who feels they have this big sin in their past I just talked about might feel spiritually. But another group of us goes broke, not spending tens to hundreds of thousand dollars with one single stroke of the pen, but through hundreds to thousands of debit card, credit card purchases, constantly buying new clothes or eating out in restaurants or going on trips you can't afford. On paper, these things all cost way less than a fancy car, but the cumulative amount tends to add up and puts you in a place where your credit card debt matches a bad car loan or mortgage, but with a worse interest rate. And that's something we can feel when we're made made aware of our daily struggle with anger or lust or selfishness. We think to ourselves, surely God cannot forgive this same thing again. I wouldn't. But friends, I want to tell you, Um, You may think, you know, this cumulative amount is just too much. I want to tell you that God is more patient with you than you are with yourself, and the work of Jesus is more complete than you know. A daily struggle with sin is promised by Jesus. He instructed his disciples in the Lord's Prayer to daily ask God to forgive them, which would be unnecessary if we didn't wrestle with sin anymore. Also, this declaration of no condemnation applies both to your past 
and future sin. A lot of Christians think, you know, Jesus paid the penalty for their past sin. He wiped the slate clean. Now I'm on my own. Almost like I'm getting you out of debt, like you're deep in debt. Jesus paid off your debt. Now he's like, no more credit cards, which would be a good thing. But, but he didn't just cover your past sin. He wrote a blank check. I heard one guy say it's like he put his name on a bank ledger. He put your name on a bank ledger. You cannot get recondemned. Again, a quick question. When Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins had been committed yet? Is anyone over the age of 2,000? Anybody? Would love your wisdom. I've seen many pandemics. You know what's going on here, right? Anyone there for the Spanish flu, Black Plague, Great Depression? Anybody? No? Okay, cool. All of our sins were future tense when Jesus died on the cross, which means Jesus dies for all of your sin, past, present, and future. Jesus' death wiped out not only the, the presence of existing condemnation, he wiped out the possibility of future condemnation. Condemnation is not an aspect to your relationship with God anymore if you're in Christ. doesn't mean discipline isn't there, which is painful correction for your own good so you avoid worse pain. But that's so different than condemnation. That's called a good father. But what would it look like to live, live in freedom from condemnation? And, 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 and again, I, I, I'm a preacher. I love alliteration, right? There's pretending and performing, which I did not come up with. But I did come up with this, proclaiming and presently being loved. Proclaiming to yourself and presently being loved. I think we have to proclaim the truth of Jesus to ourselves when we are feeling condemned. I think it's essential. That's why Paul at the beginning of Romans says, I want to I um, come preach the gospel to you guys who are already believers in Rome. Uh, Charles Spurgeon writes about this idea of preaching to yourself, proclaiming to yourself when you are feeling condemned by yourself or the enemy. I love this quote. I know that we, um, we can think of temptation as just temptation to do something wrong, but it's also the temptation to believe something that's false. And one of the things the enemy loves to throw at us is the temptation to believe that we are still condemned, that God is not for us, that he is against us. And, and Charles Spurgeon says this, when you're feeling that temptation, he says, I know, beloved, I know what the devil will say to you. He will say to you, you are a sinner. Tell the devil, you know you are, but that for all that you are, you are justified. He will tell you, of the greatness of your sin. Charles Spurgeon never had to deal with planes this way, all right? He says, I know what the devil will say to you, beloved. He will say to you, you are a sinner. Tell him, you know you are, but that for all that you are justified. He will tell you of the greatness of your sin. So kind of look back at the devil and tell him of the greatness of Christ's righteousness. He will tell you of all of your mishaps and your backslidings, of your offenses and your wanderings. Devil's got a great memory. He's got a rap sheet super long to, to read over you. Spurgeon says, tell him and tell your own conscience that you know all about that, but that Christ Jesus came to save sinners and that although your sin is great, Christ is quite able to put it all away forever. Some of you, it seems to me, Spurgeon says, do not trust in Christ as sinners. You get a mingle-mangle kind of faith. You trust in Christ as though, as though you thought Christ could do something for you and you could do the rest. 
I tell you that while you look to yourselves, you do not know what faith means. You must be convinced that there is nothing good in yourself apart from him. You must know that you are a sinner and that in your heart you are as big as the very worst and vilest. That you must come to Jesus and leave our our fancied false righteousnesses and your pretended goodnesses behind you. And you must take him for everything and trust in him for everything. Oh, to feel your sin and yet to know your righteousness and have the two together at the same time. Freedom from condemnation doesn't look like pretending or performing. Those are ways to alleviate kind of the symptoms, the anguish of feeling condemned. Jesus died to set us free from condemnation, not to just make us, uh, to create a system where we try to encourage ourselves to not feel condemned. We forget we are free from condemnation, which is why we need to proclaim that to ourselves. This will free you from the performance stuff, right? You no longer have to be unsure of God's love for you. In all your Galatians 5, Romans 7 mess, you have the unconditional love and absolute acceptance of the Father, even in your bad performances. And it also frees you from needing to pretend. Whenever I do pastoral care with people, I often encourage them that even though they are afraid to look at the wounds of their past or the sins of their present, there is nothing that's going to be revealed in that pastoral care counseling process that Jesus has not already seen and his blood is not already covered. That nothing's going to be brought up to shame you Stuff's brought up to set you free from the thing that you're already ashamed of. The Spirit brings things up to bring freedom and liberation. He doesn't bring things up to re-enslave or re-wound. Do you know how freeing that is? You don't have to pretend anymore. Someone could point out an area, like, a, like, like you've got a blind spot, and they bring some self-awareness, and you can go, I don't even know if that's true, but I'll absolutely look into it. That sounds like something someone like me would do. I'm so glad Jesus loves someone like me because I'm ridiculous. That's all of us, by the way. That's me, too. I have these tendencies, these sinful, selfish tendencies. I have a tendency to make things about me. I had um, one of my best friends in the world and my wife, who's also one of my best friends in the world, to be clear. In like a 10-day period, they both, they, they live in different cities. They experience me in very different ways. And they both said to me, man, I feel unloved by this thing that you do. And it was the same thing. And when uh, I was kind of defensive when I was talking to Jackie, and it was just she was up first, when the second person brought it I teared up and I said man actually my wife's already told me this like there's just truth to this like uh and it wasn't the craziest scandalous most scandalous thing in the world something you could miss in a conversation but I was able to go you know what and again I can only do that because of Jesus when I'm not finding my identity in Jesus I am as defensive and self-righteous as all you guys are too that was a cool moment for me and I didn't have that same moment when I first talked to Jack you guys see that We can be set free from pretending. I don't need to make you think I'm better than I am because the, the king of the universe delights in me. So it really doesn't matter what you think. Not in like a Tupac me against the world. I don't care about you, right? But in a real, I, <laughs> I, I want to, to be liked by you. I want to be loved by you. So much so that I'm willing to have you tell me hard things so that I can love you better. Because I'm not defined by what you think of me, but by what Jesus thinks of me. Also, in this cultural moment, when um, not only are we not viewed as moral, we're viewed as 
anti-moral or immoral by a secular culture for holding pretty common sense moral beliefs we've had for years, we can stand on our own two feet and go, you know what? It doesn't matter what culture thinks of me. <laughs> Christians used to get fed to lions. It's fine. We'll be okay. But it starts with the fact that there is really no condemnation. And the fact that there's no condemnation is even better than it sounds initially. One scholar writes this about this verse. We're going to close here in a second. It says, the great truth of Romans 8.1 is captured in two words, no condemnation. These two words tell us of our position as Christians. To be not condemned is, of course, a legal term. It means to be free from any debt or penalty. No one has any charges against you, regardless how you feel. A person who is in Christ Jesus is not under any condemnation from God. This is tremendous. It means God has nothing against us. He finds no fault in us. He finds nothing to punish us for. And this is where it gets crazy. However, the phrase Paul uses is not simply that Christians are not condemned. This is a much stronger phrase than that. He says that for Christians, there is no condemnation at all. It doesn't exist for us. It's not that we have moved out from under it for a while, but that it could return. It is gone forever. Commentator continues, no, there is no condemnation for us at all. It doesn't exist anymore. The reason it's important to mention this is that many think that a Christian is only temporarily out from under condemnation. Many want to limit the meaning of this phrase to our past or to our past and present, but Paul is saying categorically that condemnation no longer exists at all for a disciple of Jesus. It is not waiting in the wings to come back and cloud our future. Many believe that Christians who confess sin and then live a good life are forgiven and are at that moment not condemned, but they believe that should they sin, they are back under condemnation until they confess and repent again. In other words, if a Christian person were to sin They would come again under condemnation. It could be lost if they died in that state. If this were true, then Christians would be people who are always moving back and forth, in and out of condemnation. But this view doesn't square at all with the comprehensiveness and intensity of Paul's statement. Paul says quite literally that condemnation itself no longer exists for Christians. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thus, the moment we come into Christ Jesus, condemnation is gone forever. There is no more condemnation left for us. It is gone. There can never be condemnation for us. There is nothing but acceptance and a welcome for us. And if that doesn't get you pumped, I don't know what will. It's gone forever. Initially, I had uh, planned to preach through 1 through 11, and then yesterday I just realized there's just too much richness in verse 1, and so we're going to end here. Um, By the way, we're going to be out of order in Romans 8 the next few weeks. We're going to just backwards, frontwards, up, down. Uh, We're going to get into Romans 8, slowly unpacked what this chapter is all about. But as we close, I just want to talk about this idea of freedom from condemnation. I'll call the um, worship team up. And I want to talk to um, kind of the classic two groups in the room. The first one of those, uh, if you're here, friend, and you've never asked Jesus to forgive you or take away your condemnation, um, that's something you can do today. Like, we believe it's an actual freedom, an actual fresh start. Not to say fresh start, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a new reality to live in. It's past, present, and future. Um, we would love to pray with you today and um, introduce you to the person of Jesus, who's more beautiful than you can ask or imagine. 
And then to, uh, to those who would say you're a follower of Jesus in the room, but you still kind of believe you're in that mingle-mangle thing that Spurgeon talked about, kind of in this dysfunctional relationship with God where it's like, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not, right? Kind of this dysfunctional back-and-forth relationship. I want to be really clear, God's not the dysfunctional one. And when you don't confess your sin and repent, it's not that God doesn't love you anymore, that you're under condemnation now. It's that you're not enjoying the fact that you're not under condemnation. You're not enjoying union with Jesus. You're not enjoying the relationship. It doesn't take the love away. It makes it hard to experience the love. Think about the prodigal son. It's like a child who runs away from home. Their father and their mother ache for them. They love them, even in their rebellion, but it's hard for them to experience that love and affection while they're gone, while they're out of, while they're not looking their parents in the eyes. And so um, do you still believe functionally that you're condemned? Guys, if so, that's a tragedy. Jesus died to put condemnation to bed forever. There is no condemnation left for you, and your understanding of that can set you free. Guys, if we get this, we will become people of gratitude and joy instead of people of hypocrisy or anger or guilt or shame. Jesus came to set us free, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so right now what I want to do is um, take communion together if you're here, you're a disciple of Jesus. Also, again, if you've never asked Jesus to forgive you, I'd love to talk to you, pray with you. The song plays. This is a classic moment. I've lost my communion. Charles Spurgeon, he often jokes about that, losing his communion in the plains. Thank you. So go ahead and uh, take the bread out first. The wafer. Real quick, I want to lead you through a, um, a really simple contemplative prayer exercise. I don't want to get too crazy. But would you close your eyes for a second? I know it's going to be tricky with the plane. But would you just close your eyes for a second? Earlier I mentioned the two types of people who wrestle with feeling condemned in an ongoing way. And uh, again, I talked about there's a a big sin in the past or there's an ongoing struggle in the present. I just want to say, um, I I want you to, with your eyes closed, I want you to picture uh, an item, an item you can fit in your hand, an item that's representative of the sin you struggle with in a besetting way or that one sin in the past. be a lie you told, could be someone you know you hurt and you haven't done reparative work, you've never asked for forgiveness, confessed it, could be an ongoing struggle again with, with, with lust or anger, greed, where you go, I can't believe this is me again. If it's, if it's greed, for example, it could be a wallet. If it's sexual sin, it could be, I don't know, whatever, you think, you think of that one. But in all seriousness, you know, if it's hurting someone, think of a broken heart. But, but what's, what, just think for a second. Ask God to give you a picture. What are those one or two big things that you just think, man, I struggle to believe God could forgive me for this. 
Holy Spirit, I do ask that you would bring something to mind to these precious people. And friends, I want you to imagine holding it, and it's heavy. It's real. It's like your wrists are struggling to, to, to keep holding it up. Fingers are giving out, hands shaking. And I want you to imagine now there's a larger hand across from you, open, that looks strong, full of vitality and power. Friends, I just want you to imagine placing those items of condemnation into that hand. Put them in his hand. I know it's hard. It's scary. You're unsure. But I want you to imagine yourself placing it into his hands. And I want you to Look at your hand that's empty now. Now look at his hand that's burdened. And I want you to notice that his hand isn't shaking. It's not unsteady. It's not overwhelmed. Now imagine him, his fingers, you know, folding up towards it, like, like in a grip. Where his palm is covered and, and now his hand is, is reopening and it's empty. There is therefore now no condemnation as far as the east is from the west is your sin from those who have you know, been forgiven by God. It's gone. And so Jesus, I, I just want to thank you for taking our condemnation away. Some of us might need to do some, some horizontal work with one another. We may need to confess stuff. We need, may need to start the process of making things right. But would it be from the place of be, it's the fact that we're not condemned frees us to be honest about what we've done? Thank you that you've taken away our condemn, condemnation vertically and forever. That we should have lived, you died the death that we deserve to die. Thank you that you are condemned in our place so there's no condemnation left for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and take the bread and, and the juice. Would you now stand and let's sing as non-condemned people who are free from what people think of us, knowing that the God of the universe delights in us. Let's sing to him. <laughs>